Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. Uh, my guest is Jody Goldstein. She's the Executive Director of uh, Harvard Innovations Lab. So, Jody, thank you for coming, and how are you doing today? I'm great. Uh, happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And I know, um, you know you've had many years' experience working with uh, you know, startups and investors, and you, know, you do a lot in the lab, so we'll have to focus it down. But can you give listeners um, an overview of some of the, your favorite projects you worked on, and then we'll talk about what you're working on now? Absolutely. So you're talking about favorite projects coming out of the Harvard Innovation Labs or my personal background? Oh, uh, your personal, actually. And then we can focus on you know, what you're doing right now in the Harvard Lab. Okay, sure. Be happy to. So I started my career um, early days as a, a venture capitalist, as an early stage investor, went to business school at the um, sort of the infancy beginning of the internet, chose an unconventional career path, joining a startup straight out of school which no one really did back then, um, and spent about 15 years in early stage startups. Um, first in the internet um, as it was uh, first beginning and then moved over to mobile uh, when the internet became a little too uh, mature. Um, I tend to focus on new paradigms, early stage business, new business models. Um, it had many successes and failures along the way. Um, one of my um, favorite projects I worked on was an early stage startup called Planet All, which actually, believe it or not, was one of the first social networks before the uh, word social network existed. Um, oh, wow. And we did sell to Amazon um, back in the early days of the Internet. And it, uh, even though it's one of my favorites, I, I also think of it as one of my biggest failures because Amazon never really did anything with it. Um, but it really um, it hits on one of you know my my one of my important topics that I like to talk to students about that market timing is so important. <laughs> and uh, similarly, another uh, favorite project uh, in the mobile space was uh, a company called Mobitious, which was actually an early uh, mobile photo sharing app before mobile photo sharing apps existed. So another good example of uh, market timing being very important. Um, but uh, been involved in a lot of really... <laughs> I guess since you're interested in innovative business models and the newest of the new, that uh, the timing is probably the most critical element that you have to get right. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I coach a lot of students on this a, a lot that, uh, you know, they might have novel technology or science, but if there is no problem that they're solving and there's no market opportunity for that innovation, it really doesn't matter. Um, and so testing very early in the process is, is incredibly critical to the success of so many of these early stage founders. When, yeah, what do you think, have you identified signals that tell you that something's too early versus on time? I know that's probably a hard question, but have you figured out anything there? <laughs> if I did, uh, you know, that would be the crystal ball everyone's looking for. You know, I think it's, testing what you have as a value proposition and what we like to call the pain gain ratio very early in the process. So how big is the pain point? 
and how novel is your solution relative to what's already out there in the marketplace? And so when you're looking at that pain gain ratio, um, you know, how, how strong a solution do you have? And for, you know, a lot of these entrepreneurs, again, they may have some really novel science or technology, but if no one's willing to buy it or there's no problem really being solved, it, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and before you go out and build something and spend a few years developing that technology, um, if there are ways to prototype very early in the process to get that market validation, that's very important. Well, in addition to the, the pain gain, too, there has to be, I guess, background technology that can support you. So, like, I know AI was conceived of many years ago, but it's only recently that it's gotten a lot better because of deep learning. And then other technologies like VR, same thing. They had a, they were, people were excited and they went into a winter and went to sleep and now they're coming back again. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, using those platforms as an enabler for other industries, you know, we see so many um, early stage entrepreneurs using virtual and augmented reality to solve problems in the education space, in the medical space, in architecture, retail, et cetera, similarly with um, AI and machine learning. So using it as an enabler um, to solve problems in existing industries, I think it's where it can be really powerful. So in, in general, before we get into the specifics, what technologies do you think are, uh, have all the right things in place to, that we're going to see a lot of in the next coming years? Um, I think you did hit on a, a couple that we see a lot. You know, I think I'm, I'm sure you're, you do a lot in the area of blockchain and um, cryptocurrency. Um, you know, the same, uh, the way I was describing the AI machine learning and virtual and augmented reality, using blockchain and um, crypto to enable um, and enhance uh, other industries. Uh, you know, we, we're seeing a lot of companies uh, using it um, in novel and, and new ways. Would it be helpful to give you a little more background on the iLab and, and how things are done here for your listeners? Yeah, definitely. Then we can uh, talk about the focuses and, and see what you guys look at and what you don't look at. Because I know you can't look at everything, so good idea. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that's one of the wonderful things about what we do is that we can look at everything. Um, we're very um, driven by students and their ideas. So the way we're organized is that we support the entire Harvard community who are on a journey around exploring innovation and entrepreneurship in any industry and at any stage. Um, and it began as, you know, this university-wide experiment about seven years ago how can we nurture, support, and enable uh, student ideas? So how do they take what they're learning in the classroom and apply it to, the re to solving real-world problems? And that focus on inputs, not outputs, and this educational mission that wraps around everything we do is, I think, what enables us to look at everything. So we don't have particular theses in terms of uh, technology or uh, market opportunities that we're looking to pursue as, say, an investor would. Um, we allow the students to come to us and uh, explore any and all ideas. And so much of what we're doing is um, enabling connections to occur between students from across the university that may have different backgrounds, skills, experiences, but coming together around a shared passion or solving a particular problem. And oftentimes this, um, the ideation and the team formation um, comes from 
that cross-disciplinary approach to looking at a problem from a different point of view. Um, so many of our entrepreneurs um, didn't imagine themselves as entrepreneurs and are starting companies in uh, in uh, so many different industries. Uh, and one of the best uh, parts of my job and the most inspiring parts is um, the depth, the diversity and the breadth of ideas um, but with this common denominator around uh, potential for impact, I think it's really, it's really wonderful to see. And I think it's, it's oftentimes unusual in an academic setting. So, yes, we can explore all ideas. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it seems, you know, like there's shows like Shark Tank, which seems to have like really boring, you know, like kind of useless ideas to me. And then mm-hmm. the stuff you work on, I'm sure, is uh, a lot better. So what are, no, what are a, some projects that's a going great, on right now? Yeah, that's such a great analogy because, you know, the the entrepreneurs that are working out of here are focused on impact and solving a, a, a large world problem using entrepreneurship to do that. Um, so some of the what I like to call accidental entrepreneurs, um, uh, I'll touch on a couple that um, across different industries. One is actually um, a social entrepreneur who is looking to combat homelessness. And um, she is she started a company called Artlifting, which empowers artists to um, celebrate and sell their artwork, um, giving them a vocation and hopefully making them no longer homeless. Um, but so she's looking at a problem of homeless homelessness from a very different way. How do you um, how do you empower them uh, through their artwork? And uh, she was someone who came to Harvard, never imagined herself as an entrepreneur, came to the iLab and was exploring this as a as sort of a, a hobby or a project. And uh, she is, you know, off and running to be a very successful CEO of a, a you know, a very successful corporation. Um, and then another one that I think is a great example of uh, a personal pain point um, and trying to revolutionize a very archaic system is a company called Rapid SOS, who's um, changing the way we respond to emergencies uh, using your mobile phone and enabling you to call 911 from anywhere in the world um, with your connected devices. And uh, so he actually started the company uh, based on a personal experience. His father um, almost died. unable to reach 911 after he fell off a ladder and he wanted to change that and make sure that that never happened to anyone else. Um, And so that was, yeah. And then, you know, one in, in the, um, in the life sciences space, again, as I mentioned earlier, this cross disciplinary approach to solving big problems. uh, We had four different schools represented in this company called Vaxis, who is now developing a, um, a way to transport vaccines to developing countries and allowing it to survive the cold chain uh, without refrigeration. And uh, they came up with this idea, as they said, from this very diverse um, group of founders, one from the uh, Kennedy School, one from the law school, one from the business school, and then a PhD in chemistry. So Again, you know, I think those are, are good representations of the diversity of ideas in different industries and using this um, educational and uh, different approach to entrepreneurship. Well, it sounds like you said a lot of the people don't see themselves as entrepreneurs, but they're kind of thrust into it based on what they want to do. So what is, you know, in addition to the idea, then you have all the legwork and the framework that needs to be in place. So. What are the key elements that uh, people need to have in place in order to have a successful venture versus just, you know, 
a multi-year uh, endeavor that goes nowhere. <laughs> um, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think um, testing it in the market early and often is very important. I think entrepreneurs historically, at least when I grew up in entrepreneurship, you know, have this need to feel like they should be in stealth mode um, very early so that no one steals their ideas. And um, I find that that is um, a huge red flag to success, that if you are not testing, sharing, um, uh, and uh, approaching the market in a very open and transparent way, that there are often uh, signals that you miss, and uh, you may spend a lot of time on something that you shouldn't. So um, that's really important. I think, you know, something else that uh, Harvard students have a hard time with is learning how to fail. I think it's a, a it's an enormously important part of the entrepreneurial journey is being able to put yourself out there and try something and recognizing when it's not working and pivoting and being able to iterate on your idea. So many entrepreneurs are afraid of failure and um, also afraid to admit when something isn't working. And I think it's really important. Humility is such an important quality in uh, entrepreneurs to recognize when you don't know something. Um, or when you are wrong. Uh, so that's that's something that uh, we try to teach uh, very early on in the process as well. Um, and, um, you know, I think, you know, getting back to that value proposition, really listening to the customer and listening to the market um, and making sure that uh, you are providing something that they want. Well, have you found that uh, people have to do multiple rounds of testing? You know, do they what, do they do testing once and they say, okay, I did it, and then they don't want to do it again? Or you know, maybe get a little bit more to the details of how to do market testing right versus wrong and some of the, the things you see people run into. Yeah, you know, I find that, you know, they take a very small sample size and they think they've identified a very large market. Um, so just because a few people have said that's a nice to have or that's an interesting idea doesn't mean that there's an enormous market opportunity. So being able to extrapolate um, some of that early stage customer feedback and um, understanding whether or not that will apply to a much larger market application. Um, and so I think also aligning yourself with um, mentors and advisors uh, very early in the process is so important. So much of what we do is try to lower those friction costs and give uh, these students access to the resources and the experts um, that have been through this before and have learned from their own failures. Um, and, uh, you know, helping those entrepreneurs, uh, you know, we like to say we like to give them an unfair competitive advantage uh, through giving them this marketplace of resources um, so that, you know, perhaps they don't make the same mistakes I did and other entrepreneurs have made in the past. Well, how, how big is a is a proper sample size? You know, does it vary by industry? You know, how many how many people do entrepreneurs tend to test their ideas on, and how many should they test them on? Yeah, I think that really depends on the industry. You know, when you're looking at a life science venture versus a, uh, a consumer technology, so I, I you know, I can't say that there's a uh, you know a sweet spot, but I think testing early and often is uh, very important. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if there's a ballpark, you know, 100 may be good, may not be good, but 1,000, you're getting into the neighborhood, you know? Right, right, exactly. Okay. I just wanted to know some general guidelines. So what are, I don't know, to you, what are some of the most amazing uh, projects going on right now that you're really, like, in awe of? They may work, they may not work, but you know, which ones are really, like, <laughs> exciting you right now? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's like picking your favorite child. There's so many that I am in awe of. Um 
you know, one area, it, one um, company in the area of life sciences, and again, I don't think I gave you the full picture of uh, the Harvard Innovation Labs ecosystem. We're actually a, a three-lab ecosystem. We have the iLab for students, and we have the Launch Lab for alumni, and then we have uh, something called the Life Lab for our life science ventures that opened two years ago. And so we um, provide, in addition to all the resources at the iLab, we provide uh, wet lab benches for uh, entrepreneurs in the life science space. And so we have about 15 teams uh, at any given time over there. And one of the companies, and there's so many, of course, that are doing amazing things, uh, but one of the companies that I, I'm continuously in awe of is a company called Catalog, which is actually uh, using the power of DNA to enable the next generation of data, digital data storage. Uh, so I remember when I first heard their pitch, um, I <laughs> couldn't get my head around what they were actually describing to me. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there are other companies working in this space, um, but it's, it's incredibly exciting to me to, again, be taking an industry um, of data storage that has existed for so many years and using the area of life sciences and the power of DNA to enable and catalyze that next generation. So it's, it's pretty novel and interesting. Um, oh, they're trying to store data on DNA. Yes, yes, I know. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, the, the Googles of the world and the large companies, there's a lot of companies working uh, in areas like this, but the way that they are um, doing it is different. Um, using uh, the, the name of the company catalog is like uh, cataloging library books, um, using that uh, mental model. So they're just taking a, a novel, uh, different approach to it. So uh, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And then on in the AI machine learning side, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, using this as a platform and an enabler for other industries. Um, we have a lot of companies in this space. One is uh, called Sage Learning, which is actually um, an ed tech startup. And they're using artificial intelligence um, to power their platform for easy creation of content for, um, uh, for teachers and learners to um, create and distribute that content. Uh, and then on the flip side, back to the life sciences area, we have another company that's using machine learning to modernize um, infectious disease diagnosis and treatment in the hospital setting. So being able to use genome, sequ genome sequencing and machine learning to um, diagnose the right antibiotic to be used in hospitals, the, the name day zero is so that they can get the right um, treatment on that first day when they're in the hospital instead of treating someone with the, the wrong um, treatment. So those are just a couple right. examples that are uh, working in different, I think, using um, these platforms in, uh, in new ways across different industries. Do, do you see a lot of um, simultaneous co-invention or, um, you know, then I wanted you to comment on patents and, uh, you know, you talked about secrecy, but patents and intellectual property, how much of a role does and should that play? And then, you know, co-invention. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. You know, one of the things that uh, is is really wonderful and important about the work that we do is uh, we call it an IP-free zone. So first of all, the students own all their own ideas. So the university is not taking a claim on anything that is coming out of the iLab. And that allows for alignment and transparency and um, 
and a support system that I think is very different uh, than other university settings. Um, so we do uh, work closely with the tech transfer office. And if someone is spinning out our licensing technology from the university, they go through the tech transfer office um, and we can help support them during that process. But we actually um, take a very um, uh, Switzerland approach where uh, we are not um, um, uh, siding with the university or uh, trying to take, take a claim to any of the ideas that uh, the students are creating here at the iLab. Um, oh, well, and again, I think that allows for much freer, um, freer um, ideas and um, students working together. And uh, very early on, I remember when we first opened, uh, we had a policy that at the end of every day, uh, we would erase every whiteboard because we didn't want anyone stealing anyone else's ideas. And uh, the students uh, came to us very early on and said, you know, actually, it's leaving our, our information up on the whiteboard that's uh, actually encouraging collaboration. And someone might walk by and see what we're working on and contribute to it or um, add an idea that we hadn't thought of. And uh, so the exact opposite typically occurs, that uh, students sharing their ideas and um, helping each other out uh, leads to better outcomes. Do you deliberately do that? That seems like, uh, it seems like it'd be a cool idea if, you know, one day a week, uh, students came in and they were asked to <clears throat> work with teams on, I don't know, five other projects for the day. So they deliberately get exposure to other ones. Um, I, you know, we're not that prescriptive. You know, we try to create circumstances where collaboration occurs. Um, we like to call it structured serendipity. So we want the, um, we want it to happen organically and naturally, uh, but we want to create the circumstances by which students from across industries, across schools, can uh, can come together and collaborate. In fact, last night here at the iLab, we had uh, one of our events that we like to call Pitch, Mix, and Match, where uh, some students will come with ideas that they'd like to pitch to other students, um, and they can join teams. Um, other students are there just to contribute their expertise or a skill they have, and they might not come with an idea. And so it enables that really nice, natural um, cross-pollination of ideas and, um, and skill sets uh, to apply to uh, different areas of uh, ideation. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I just wondered if, again, working on other people's projects would uh, provide insight, you know, for someone working on their own project. They could see, No, you know, absolutely. How, yeah. Do you have the, um, the you groups, know, like, pitch to each other? Do they do mini pitches to train them to you know, look for funding or to get in front of investors. I mean, I could see in the lab why it could become like a whole ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. You know, being able to tell your story and uh, present your ideas in a clear and concise way is one of the most important things for early stage entrepreneurs and their, um, you know, whether or not they're able to raise money. So we provide um, many different opportunities for them to uh, have pitch practice both to each other. So there's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer learning and feedback opportunities, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, to some of the experts, the mentors, the advisors, our staff, um, who uh, give them a lot of feedback along the way. And then there's often opportunities um, to pitch to a much uh, larger audience um, through our President's Innovation Challenge and other, um, you know, other uh, events that we have where um, students uh, have the opportunity to compete against each other and um, uh, you know, present their ideas to uh, to external stakeholders and investors. So what do you do if um, someone says, I just want to be a scientist, you know, I have this idea, but I don't want to be an entrepreneur. 
do you tell them, well, you have to be for a while, but then as quick as you can, you'll go back to your normal role, or do you need to get someone <laughs> that will be the head of your thing and you're the guy in the back room or the girl in the back room, like working on the idea? Like, what do you do in those circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that's a big part of our value proposition is uh, bringing people together and allowing them to focus on their core competency and their skill set. So, so many of our entrepreneurs, particularly the science-based entrepreneurs, might uh, be coming out of the engineering school or the medical school or uh, the school of public health, and they might have an expertise but they don't really want to be an entrepreneur, but they might team up with someone from uh, the college or the business school or um, other schools that uh, can enable them to take their science or technology to the market. Um, And some of them, again, as you mentioned, do just want to be a scientist or a researcher. So they could be a founder, but they don't necessarily want to be the CEO or the head of the company. And uh, we see that happening a lot. In addition, many uh, faculty are founders of um, many of the ideas and the companies that come out of here, um, and they're content to keep their faculty appointment um, and then uh, roll out their technology um, and allow uh, someone else to uh, spin that out. So, um, you know, really uh, enabling people to find uh, the right uh, management team and team members that uh, will enable them to bring that science or technology to market. Okay. Um, any comments in the current environment? You know, we're here at the end of uh, 2018. You know, what do you see happening over the next couple of years? Just, you know, innovation as usual, which I guess is like, a, you know, an ironic <laughs> phrase. Or do you, see, do you see things changing very much? You know, I, I hate to sound cliche, but I feel like there's no better time in history to be an innovator and entrepreneur than now. I think um, there's never been uh, more access to capital and resources to enable all of the things that I discussed early on about uh, market validation early in the process and lowering those friction costs, uh, giving them access to resources so you can test um, ideas. And then layer on top of that, I think this idea to uh, focus on making the world a better place and this, you know, focus on making an impact as opposed to making money, which in my generation early as an early stage entrepreneur was more the focus. I see so many novel ideas uh, coming out of the university that are going to make a difference in the world. Um, And it's not about the next mobile app or uh, consumer internet uh, opportunity. It's really about, you know, as as I was discussing some of these other, um, these ideas of, of using innovation and entrepreneurship to solve some of these big problems in new and novel ways. And so I, I think, I think the combination of this access to capital, access to resources, access to communities like ours, and there's so many others like them that give entrepreneurs um, a way to um, uh, catalyze the development of of their ideas and to um, raise their chances of success and and making that difference in the world. So, you know, and, and I guess I would lastly say that there's never been a time in history where innovation is more important than it is today. You know, when you think about all of the technologies that are coming down the pipeline, that the human creativity and innovation, I think, is is so critical to um, the future of, of everything that we do. What about for listeners that, you know, aren't part of the lab and, uh, you know, either they're on their own or, um, you know, they're at a school that's not as supportive or doesn't have these resources. What, what's your suggestions for them? 
Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, there's so many resources for entrepreneurs in whatever community they are in, whether they're part of our university or their incubators or even um, uh, industry and corporate uh, incubation centers and labs are popping up everywhere. Uh, many of them giving away uh, capital as well as resources. Um, and so I would advise people to apply to these different programs, pitch their ideas at open pitch nights. Um, you know, e there's so many resources. It's not, you know, I don't think Harvard is unique or Boston is unique uh, to providing um, so many resources and this, this sense of community for, um, for entrepreneurs. Um, it's really, again, I think a wonderful time. And I think because of technology, too, I think you can start a company with very little capital these days and you can get out there in the marketplace and prototype and test um, with 3D printing and, you know, other uh, platforms and you know, web development platforms that you can uh, get your product in the marketplace uh, much quicker and easier um, early stage and uh, not have to spend years uh, toiling away and spending a lot of money doing it. So. Um, I do believe if, if someone sees a problem to be solved in the world, uh, entrepreneurship is a, is a wonderful way to uh, try to solve that problem. No, I, I agree. Totally. Um, any other pieces of advice for, uh, you know, budding entrepreneurs, you know, maybe in terms of raising money, uh, you know, is it a bad idea to try to raise a lot of money early? Is that just a waste of your time? Is it critical to do it at a certain point? You know, what's your opinion around that? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, people forget that uh, a, a great source of capital are, is uh, revenue, cash flow. <laughs> and people mm -hmm. think that, you know, in order to start a company, you have to go out and raise outside money. And I, my advice is, if there is a, a, a clear use of funds, and you know why you are raising that money, and how it's going to enable your company to get bigger, faster, and get to market uh, in a better way, that is a great option, um, but it's not the only option. I think there are many bootstrap companies um, that uh, are able to succeed as well. There's also different uh, sources of capital. It doesn't have to be dilutive funding. Uh, there's lots of non-dilutive funding out there. Uh, prize money is one, um, as I had mentioned as well. If you're in the life sciences space, uh, you know, SBIRs, grants, um, and also uh, strategic investors as well who have uh, an interest in seeing your company succeed. So don't feel like venture capital is the only way to go. And I agree with you. I think um, raising too much money early in the process um, can be the, the worst thing that a company can do. Um, I've seen that happen quite a bit uh, <laughs> personally, um, as well as uh, some of the companies that I've nurtured here. Um, raise as little as you can and continue to validate um, and uh, I think uh, that's the best way to achieve success. Okay. And then uh, last question, uh, any resources to get people's head in the game? Books, courses, uh, places to go, people to talk to? You know, you mentioned a lot, but are there any that, uh, you know, get them motivated and get them thinking the right way? You know, we all need that periodic refreshment yes. of uh, the mindset, you know? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's so many resources out there. You know, we uh, we have our own YouTube channel. We have hundreds of workshops that uh, we have recorded on there from so many incredible experts, entrepreneurs that have come here and taught. And that's open to anyone. So whether or not you're a Harvard student or not or anywhere in the world, you can access uh, that great uh, that resource. All right, that's great. Excellent. And then um, I don't know if you, if people want to get in touch with the uh, the Harvard Lab or perhaps you, you know, what are some uh, ways for them to reach out? 
Sure. Um, check out our website um, at i-lab at harvard.edu. And um, again, many of our uh, workshops and the content that we produce is on there. You can also uh, join our newsletter and many of our, um, our events are open to the public. So if you happen to be in the Boston area, um, you can stop by a lot of our events as well. Oh, very cool. All right, Jody. Well, thanks for coming. And uh, it's been great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.